From runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 636, Azure Data Lakes with guest Stasha Varga. Recorded Thursday, March 7th, 2019. Run As Radio is produced each week by Sound Thoughts LLC. For more information, go to soundthoughtsllc.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Campbell, and thanks for listening to Run As Radio. Today, my guest is Stacia Varga, who is a consultant, educator, and author specializing in helping organizations build data analytics solutions. She's been doing that since 1999, and I appreciate that format of a bio because then it's not a number of years, so the next year it's wrong. So, <laughs> but, wrong. Wait, it's 2019. <laughs> that means we've been doing this for 20 years. In an official capacity, prior to that, I really was doing it before I knew that's there was a whole field around it. Yeah. Because, you know, data's been around since we've had computers, right? Pretty and much, yeah. All the managers, they want to know what the data's telling them. Mm-hmm. So that's really what I've spent my whole life doing, which was much longer than 20 years in a professional <laughs> capacity. <laughs> but it's amazing how the tools have evolved. Like, yes. 1999 was a very different world. Yes. And you know what I think about is if you put your mind back to being in 1999, Mm -hmm. what was the big thing? Oh, SQL Server, certainly. Well, bigger than that. What? You mean the web? (laughs) The internet. The internet, yes. Okay, it's in the middle of the dot-com boom. Yes, and I was in Seattle at that time, so it was very incredible times. And a lot of, I think the term was called irrational exuberance, and (laughs) that was partly referred to, I think, the stock market. But it was largely due to the web and the ideas and things like that. So meanwhile, data has been kind of boring, you know, same old, same old with databases, you know, relational data is relational data is relational data. And yes, we get features and all sorts of things. But in my mind, think about going back to what I was saying, 1999, and what we thought the web could be, should be, and was at that point in time, versus now. And it's a huge difference. Oh, sure. Huge difference. And, and you know, the reality has shaken out. And the things I can remember, just as one example, I can remember maybe even going back to 95 of what Amazon looked like. It was a web page that had just uh, text blocks and maybe there was images, but primarily text is what I really recollect with links to products, primarily books at the time, and look at them today, you know, of what was versus what is. And certainly all the infrastructure around them with Amazon web services and so on and so forth. So, so think about that in terms of what the web has done to change the world. Yeah. And now what I think, coming back to the data side, I believe we're in that 1999 space with data where we are right on that verge of really amazing things. And we're back in that, you know, what could be, should be, and what is today versus what's going to be. And 10 years from now, we're going to look back and go, oh, this Can you is believe so- we did it that way back then? 
Yeah. So, but we really, I, I really think we're in that shakeup stage where there's a lot of really interesting ideas, a lot of crazy ideas and some things that are just hard to do, but, but it's changed, you know, and, and, and that builds on that legacy of what happened with the web, because a lot of those technologies, a lot of the cloud, um, technology specific to data management and data analytics is building on what made the web what it was. So, I mean, you can't have the cloud without the internet, but is it more than that? Like, what what do you see that the web did that it really made this whole new analytics model make sense? Well, it's the notion of elasticity, mm -hmm. I think, is probably the first and foremost uh, aspect of it, of, of building an infrastructure that can support um, a little bit or mm -hmm. a lot and being able to, to scale accordingly, but being able to uh, expand and collapse as needed to support, you know, an unknown demand. You can't predict it. Well, maybe we can eventually, but, but um, you know, and the, and the, the elasticity and the, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of a, a combination of both redundancy as well as the, um, you know, the commodity hardware, yeah, you know, utility computing. Failure. I, the, the whole utility compute thing to me is huge that yes. you can, you can just ha harness a bunch of machines for an hour and then give them back. Yes, that too. You don't have to go and buy it and build it and set it up and then wonder, are we really taking advantage of this, yeah. you know, to justify the expenditure that we can just rent it as needed. And so I mean, you can experiment are, too. You, you can take yeah. some chances. I remember doing data analytics projects in those early days where it was multi-million dollar commitments and you were doing all of this estimating of all this gear you're going to need for right. that building of a data warehouse and, and the con the querying speeds mattered. You know, I read yes. Ralph Kimball's book and this whole idea of chasing an intuition. And then if you didn't query fast enough, you just couldn't chase the intuition. You'd never get value from it. Right. We call that speed of thought mm -hmm. uh, processing. Right. You know, back in the day. <laughs> now, and, in, and it's still true, obviously. It's just that with cloud, you don't have to think about that. It kind of just happens and you harness what you need when you need it. Right. So it's it's very, very cool. So I think that capability, I, I think that people's ability to work with that mm -hmm. conceptually. And I'm talking about analysts and users, you know, not the IT professionals that are, are building the systems, but rather the, the, at the end of the day, the business people who are trying to access this information, their ability to work with this is still fairly, you know, you've got the, the exceptions to the rule, of course, but the general population is still kind of pie in the sky, uh, kind of scary, advanced for them, and it, but it'll catch up. It'll be normal uh, someday, and we're right at that pivot point, right? Interesting. So that's really exciting to be in the data field at this point. I spent. I remember spending a lot of time trying to figure out what data we need and how we'd shape it. Yes. Because we were constrained by resources, by compute resources. Yes. So you had to figure out, because it's expensive to store the data. Yeah. It's expensive to, to transform it. All those things have costs. And mm -hmm. that meant whatever you were building, you bet it better be answering some very good questions that either helped you make money or save money. Right. But it cost you a lot to get to that point. So you had to be very careful with what you did. Yeah, I think you did, you did a lot more planning because you were making a two-comma commit and you didn't know really what the ROI was going to be. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's exciting because we can do more, mm-hmm. which means we can analyze more and we can experiment more and say, well, what if we did XYZ with the data? What happens when we do that? And if it fails, no biggie because it didn't cost us a lot to be able to figure that out. Right. So what are we doing differently now that we have the cloud? Like I, they, they do have Azure Data Warehouse. I, yes. just, I just don't know that it makes sense anymore to build a data warehouse that way. Ah, oh, that's a good question. And that's something that I do get into. So, mm-hmm. so you know, I'm going to pull the typical consultant remark and say it just depends, nice. right? <laughs> but but what the way that I see it, it's not an either-or proposition. Right. And um, I think Azure, Azure SQL Data Warehouse has a place in the world for certain types of things. I would say for at least the my more mainstream types of customers that a more traditional data warehouse still has its purpose in life, but not everything has to be in the data warehouse. And so more, you know, we hear the term data platform and that's really the best best term that I can think of Mm -hmm. for it because we just, we have pockets of data, right? We have data that's just serving a purpose in terms of running the business, our transactional data. We have data that we're using to answer questions or just, you know, look something up. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's just different reasons for different usage of that data. And therefore we have different technologies that are best suited for particular use cases. Now, what I think is changing, and I don't think we're 100% there yet, but I think this is the direction that we're going, is before we had to move data explicitly mm-hmm. from point A to point B to point C, you know, to do these very specific things with them with the, the technology that we needed to do to perform a specific task, needed that data structured in a very specific way in order to you know, let's say OLAP as an example. Right. We had to do things with that because then the benefit of OLAP was to d- get that speed of thought. Ask and answer, ask and answer those questions. And so we had to restructure the data. But where we're moving to is saying, look, that movement and transformation of the data is costly. Sure. And costly in terms of infrastructure, costly in terms of time. And so what if we just leave the data where it is and we can use it in any variety of ways and we have this layer that kind of sits on top and says, I really don't care how it's stored. Mm-hmm. From the end user perspective, I just want to use it. So we're just talking about file storage? Like file storage is enough? I don't, but it's see, the point is, is that it doesn't matter. Right. That it, it, when it makes sense, use that. When it makes sense to do something else, like for example, there was a time, oh, maybe about five, six years ago, mm-hmm. the things that I was hearing, you know, big data was the big buzz and, you know, Hadoop, Hadoop, Hadoop. Right. And everything's going to be Hadoop. And, and Hadoop makes sense for some things, but not for all things. But the things that I was hearing was, oh, we're going to replace relational now. And I just thought, oh, That's no. crazy talk. Yeah. <laughs> but there was serious talk about this, but we can't. Is this sort of a disease of the one right way? Yes. You know, and it's, and it's a disease. Like, it's you're crazy. I mean, relational data stores exist for a reason, and map-reduced data stores exist for a reason. Like, they're not the same thing. They're, they do exactly. different purposes. 
and JSON, you know, then we had, we, first we had XML, now we have JSON, right. and everything's JSON, 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 <laughs> and that's fine for some things. So, the, the bigger picture is to say, look, let's not agonize about one format anymore right. or moving it from point A to point B because we want to use this technology today and this technology tomorrow or both technologies simultaneously and I got to move data around. But instead, let's just leave data where it is for whatever purpose is creating it or using it, what have you. But let's not worry about that. Let's instead think about the technologies that allow us to move across this world of data without worrying about how are we going to connect it or um, we can just use it. See, right. the, the technology is enabling us to just use it without all this other stuff that we've traditionally been doing. And that's the very interesting thing. So if it needs to be Hadoop, great. If it needs to be file storage, great. If it needs to be relational, fine. But we can integrate all of that stuff seamlessly from a user perspective and that's the part that's cool, I think, right now. It's not easy. And I'm thinking as a, as a front-end guy, as a dev guy, I put data in certain places. Mm-hmm. And isn't this the diversity of store then? It's like maybe I stored in SQL Server. Maybe I stored in some kind of object store like a Mongo, those mm-hmm. kinds of things. Like I don't know that you'd ever store anything Hadoop. Every time I've ever used Hadoop, I pulled from multiple sources, did a little ETL, put yeah. it in the distributed store, and did analysis on it. That's true. That's true. I mean, Hadoop is really more of an umbrella term anyway. Right. So for the the um, map reduce style anal- analytics. Exactly. Okay. Right. Right. So again, fundamentally, and I wouldn't say in one hundred percent of all cases, uh, but it is file storage under the covers mostly. Yeah. But it could be relational. Yeah. It it almost doesn't matter. It's, if you can do the analysis, you can do the analysis. I, That's I, my point. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I I just wonder if this ETL idea is kind of obsolete because we we used to build these mechanisms to take data from different sources and sort of polish it up and put it in a store where it would query fast. Yeah. And I don't know that we need to do that anymore. Well. So it depends. <laughs> so Good I'll answer. Go back to, to that again, <laughs> and so it depends on what you're doing with it. And so in some cases, um, I mean, I mean, I think that's the part that's getting the real attention mm-hmm. uh, of everything. Is uh, okay. Let's leave the data where it is because number one, it's just getting to be too much of it, uh, and so moving it around becomes expensive, and you know, so just a, a lot of different um, and time consuming. And time consuming. So, so there's this Lambda architecture. Have you heard about this? No. That the Lambda architecture is this idea where some of it's happening at a, in a streaming. So your data is coming at you very fast. Right. And, and some things are batched. Right. And so you can think of that as sort of uh, another extension of um, the ETL, but it's, it's different. You know, we've, we've switched it around to ELT. So extract, load, and then transform. So, right. so basically you land the data somewhere and, uh, and then you worry about the transformations on the fly or later. Maybe we have, uh, we think about, uh, well, let's go jump into the term data lake, which mm-hmm. could mean a lot of different things to different people. But uh, fundamentally, just think of it as just this big gob of storage. Right. And and I don't really care about the technology behind the storage. It's just from a from a user perspective, there's data there. And so you would start to think about spaces in that storage where some of the data is just raw. 
and that's that. Right. Versus you might have some that's processed for specific purposes. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's for machine learning on the one hand, or maybe you have some that's processed for, um, you know, very, you know, your data scientists that are doing some exploration and you've got another, so you, you start taking that data and, and essentially making different copies of it. You still have the raw data and maybe that's your, your primary mm-hmm. place, but you're going to process it for different things. But where the, the Lambda architecture comes in and says, okay, we're going to start um, accepting this data in different rates of ingestion and kind of merging them together. Uh, at the end of the day for people to use in whatever way makes sense for their use case. So it's, it's all very interesting. So am I actually maintaining a copy of my database in a data lake to make it available? Is that necessary? Uh, I mean, in, if, well, when you say copy of a database, <laughs> it kind yeah. of depends on what do you mean yeah. by that? Um, is it relational store? Um, I, I don't think of the data lake as including relational storage, honestly. Okay. So um, relational li- sort of lives on its own. Yeah. I would say that they're, they're neighbors. Right. But I don't, I, I mean, maybe somebody else has a more comprehensive thought about yeah, that. I just, I don't I, think maintaining copies of databases makes a lot of sense. But if I've no. got flat files need to live somewhere, I happily stick them in the so-called data lake. Although I yes. guess it's just file storage, really. Yes, yes. And Stacia, I'm going to interrupt you for one moment for this very important message. This episode of Run As is brought to you by SQL Intersection. Eight full-day workshops and over 40 technology-focused sessions make SQL Intersection a unique source of the best information around SQL Server from real-world consultants and members of the SQL Server team. You'll learn proven problem-solving techniques and technologies you can implement immediately, as well as learn about the future of SQL Server. Get answers to performance monitoring, troubleshooting, designing for scale and performance, cloud, as well as new features in the latest version of SQL Server 2019. It's time to determine your migration strategy, and SQL Intersection is the place to figure out the best way to do it. Come to SQL Intersection at the Swan Hotel in Orlando, June 10th to 13th. Use code RUNAS to get your discount on your registration at SQLintersection.com, and we'll see you there. And we're back. It's Richard Campbell. It's Run As Radio, and I'm talking to Stacia Varga about sort of this modern data analytics world. But certainly, I was trying to figure out what the heck a data lake really is. Because if it's just a file, there's more to it than just being a file store, right? Well, technically, I would say no. It's a place where data lives, right? And so, um, the guy that uh, first came up with this word, mm-hmm. it was uh, actually James Dixon from Pentaho. And I think it came from 2010, if I have my history correct on this. But um, but I do have a quote from him. And he says, if you think of a data mart as a store of bottled water, it's cleansed and packaged and structured for easy consumption. Mm-hmm. And I think structure is a key word there. I, I would underline that if we were in the same room looking at this. But structure is key. Um with regard to data mart, the data lake is a large body of water in a more natural state. The contents of the data lake stream in from a source to fill the lake, and then various users of the lake can come to examine, dive in, or take samples. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I think that's a really good metaphor, but it is still kind of nebulous. And the way that I try to help people get their 
minds wrapped around this is like, for one thing, what is a, what does a lake evoke for you? For some people, it means something big, it might be deep, and maybe they think they have real positive associations with it because they're comfortable in the water and you right. like to fish or swim and it's refreshing. Or maybe you don't know how to swim and so it's like it's a big scary place and I don't like it and I'm very uncomfortable and I'm anxious and overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about that from data. You could have those same emotional responses to data as well. Right. So, um, you know, it's like there's a whole bunch of stuff out there. I don't know how to get at it. I don't know. Uh, if it's good. If, it's if it makes good, sense. Can I make, if it makes sense. Yeah. Yes. Or there's just stuff there and does it mean anything? And so, we could almost call that a data swamp. Right. Well, I think it's only, you know, what's, yeah, is, is the difference between a swamp and a lake in the eye of the beholder? Yes, it is. And I would so so kind of going back to just storage, so we can store things there, but we have to have a way for people to understand what's there. So having some type of metadata. Right. That allows them to search what's in there is super important or having some kind of organizational structure, but then you could be I was going to say fluid, but that wasn't intentional. <laughs> nice. <laughs> gonna, it's all going to be lake puns for the rest of the day, is it? Okay. Right. <laughs> but I do like this flexibility of all the data should land here. And if it's, mm-hmm. if it's something we haven't seen before, it still should land here. It's just a question of what is an organizational method that will actually help you identify it and, you know, have some sense of value around it. And make make it usable. So, mm-hmm. always, data in its raw form is rarely usable. Right. Usually, we have to do some sort of transformation, even if that's on the fly. And so, how that happens is, I think, really the, the interesting direction in technology is how we're doing that. So, with Microsoft, we have... Power BI as an example. And so I can, as an end user, just kind of take some raw data and I can do some things with it to shape it into a way that's more usable for me. But the problem, again, with that had been uh, if each, you know, I've got five users and they all do it five different ways. Well, where's my organizing principles? Mm -hmm. Where's my controls that we didn't calculate something five different ways and we have five different answers and we're back to where we were you know, what data warehouses are supposed to solve for us in the first place. So, um, Power BI has evolved in some ways to address that. Mm-hmm. And so, we can, um, all those steps that an individual user performed to shape it from one thing to another to another to the final form, that can be sto- uh, stored independently as what's called a data flow. And people can continue to use that one set of logic and then access the data. And so being able to, this, I think this is really fascinating, being mm-hmm. able to store those transformation steps independently of, you know, something as, you know, uh, organizational as integration services, for right. example, to more of a personal user layer. So that you can sort of maintain your own set of transformations. Right. But you could have, and here's here's another term that's super important, mm-hmm. is data governance, is you can say, look, I have this free-for-all. You can go swimming in the, the data lake. Here's the raw data. 
But if you're going to use this for certain purposes or for sharing to certain uh, levels of the organization, then we need some sort of certification process. We right. need some validation that the, the steps that you perform to get the data from the raw structure to this final structure are valid and tested and certified. So sort for- of last year's data has been cleaned. Yes. And tidied up. And you should use this if you're trying to do anything that actually reconciles. Yes. Okay. So we're trying to balance two worlds. One is that free for all mm-hmm. of, you know, let's just go explore. But we still, you know, if you're going to report up to management or to external stakeholders, shareholders, you need to know I can count on this data. And yeah, this so monthly sale data better be correct. Yes. You know, if yes. You, as soon as you show incorrect numbers once, people will question yeah. your reporting forever after that. Exactly. Yeah. So, so that's the tricky part of data lakes. And, and technology is not necessarily going to help us with that because that's really coming back to people and processes. This sounds governance related. Like, I think I, suddenly you've given me an idea that I want fairly strict controls on who's allowed to go to the data lake. That for yes. many people, it's only this matured set of data that I want uh, available to them. That's true. You could section off, Mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know, the parts of the data lake and you say this group, you only get this part that's been certified. This other group, you, you, you know, we trust you to, you know, be more experimental and, you know, to control how you're using and sharing that information. Sure. But, um, but yeah, you know, and I said not necessarily because I could in theory envision a world where it is kind of managed for us, but then that starts getting into Skynet and it gets a little scary. (laughs) Yeah. Well, (laughs) You, you, you already said machine learning once, Stacia. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm keeping tally here. But, <laughs> I, you know, the conversations that I've had on the show, especially around uh, this automation of data analytics of machine learning pieces, is that the operators, the quote-unquote data scientists, they spend more time cleaning data than they do just about anything else. Like, that seems to be the key issue. Yes. That, that this raw, raw data has flaws that upsets algorithms. And then yes. you do need to spend the time to get it into shape uh, before you would you would want to put a machine learning tool to it. Although, you know, th- it really doesn't sound that different than handing the analytics raw data where they're going to give bad, give you bad monthly totals. It's the same right. problem. Yeah. It's always been the problem. Mm-hmm. It's been the problem my entire career in data. Cleanliness. And, yeah. Yeah. Just sort of okay. reality that... Data, data so. has grubbiness in it. It has issues Very in much. it. Very much. That's a kind way of putting it. <laughs> so maintain a raw, a copy of the raw data with a sort of fence around it. And then you have this, I like your term, certified sets so of stuff that's been handled by folks who are good at data and, and have done reconciliations so that they have confidence this is correct. That if you, Exactly. If you don't add up monthly totals correctly at this point, that's on you. Right. Right. Yeah. So that's really, I think, um, in a way that's not really any different from what we had from traditional data warehousing, sure. but it's, it's really how the process goes from where that 
data came from, where is it stored? You know, it's really more of the flow. Right. You know? So I used to think of in terms of like if I drew a diagram of the traditional data warehouse, we have the source and then we have the data warehouse in the middle and we have mm-hmm. the people on the right. Yep. And and I think we we still have that. It's just the thing in the middle has just broken out into many more pieces. One and, of the issues that I dealt with the data warehousing in the earlier days is that you added a new line of business or you mm-hmm. tweaked a model and it was disruptive to the data warehouse. Yes. And often yes. making revisions because it was so formal. We had an awful lot of infrastructure around it, mostly for optimization. Making changes to that was never trivial. And when you right. did, it impacted the validity of all the data previous to it. So you sort of had these breaking points in reporting. Yep. And that's one of the the challenges with managing data warehouses is because those it, it, business life is in perpetual change. Sure. And so trying to create something static is an impossible task. So this is where I see the data lake and the data warehouse living side by side. Mm-hmm. Because they each serve a different purpose. And so you think of the data warehouse as being the questions that I can ask and answer that I'm doing repetitively. What happened last week? What happened last month? These are questions that are always the same when we're in a particular part of business. We're always going to ask those questions. We're looking at you know, year over year comparisons of whatever we're measuring. And so there's no reason to, to tear that down. But as you mentioned with a new source, it's like, well, maybe I might get it eventually into the data warehouse, but meanwhile, until I do, let's let people access it right. until we can formalize those structures. So it gives us, I'll go back to that notion of fluidity again, it gives me that ability to deliver flexibly and not slowing down the process of decision making. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, I can formalize um, the infrastructures as we need to when we know that we want to ask the same question over and over again. Right. A- and formalize it. But until we know that we need to formalize it, let's still have a way of delivering that information. It just, it's cheaper, easier, but it requires more governance to make sure that we're not abusing that information yeah, or mis- you know, misleading ourselves as well. I mean, it, that's all, all a challenge in there. Yeah. I, I remember having these conversations about ETL processes. It's like, we are shaving the edges off of the data and that might be the most interesting bits. Yeah, that's true. And um, yeah, I, I've certainly had conversations with people who say, Oh, well, we can't, you know, the flip side of that is keeping all this data is just garbage right. and, you know, there's no value in it. And, you know, I don't know that I, I hate blanket statements because, sure. you know, they're wrong. Every place is different. Yeah. <laughs> well, you think there is no one right way. I, right. I've certainly dealt with this with demographic data where we've had an other category and then some aspect of the other emerges as significant enough that it should have its own entry point. Yeah. And and just being able to tolerate that. It's a remarkably difficult thing to do. And yet, when you talk about data analytics for sales, demographic data is the most important thing. So if you, you know, what is other uh, except a new emerging market? Right. We should be good at that. And we aren't. Right. <laughs> and that that's what my frustration with these tools is always like that is we are inevitably we when we build these formal analytics tools we inevitably predefine who our customers are and if we get new customers we won't see it we've put on a pair of glasses that make that invisible to us 
Yeah. And um, boy, I was just thinking about this the other day and I'm mm-hmm. trying to remember the context, but it was essentially, oh, I, I was making a a large purchase and you know it, it, you know being a data person as i'm sitting there as a consumer right what's running through my mind is all the back end processes and the things that are going on You're such a geek <laughs> you know so i'm thinking about the data behind the, the scenes and thinking about um how Oh, because it was it was basically financing a transaction, and right. I was thinking about it because they were they were saying, well, this is our traditional um, lenders that we would work with, but we're going to go with this group now because they're they've got some different rules. And I was thinking, aha, they're probably doing some analytics that have said, how do we identify customers that we want? How do we because because like you as a consumer, you go to a bank right. and you have a checking account, maybe a savings account, maybe a, a, a credit card. But, the, you know, you're just not going every day walking down the street and say, I know I'm going to go open another checking account. Right. <laughs> I mean, this is just not a daily nope. thing we do. Right. It's so, a hardly everything. So as a as a bank or a, a financial institution, you've got to get more and more clever about how do you find your customers. Right. And you have to say, if we've had a certain set of criteria to lend money to a certain target population, and we've kind of pretty much saturated that, what else are we going to do? They've got to start digging through it and figuring out, Okay, what's different? What can I do to find something that's not intuitive? You know, something that we all, you know, I'm, we as the financial institutions right. that we all know these are good risks. How do I find some some other demographic that's a good risk but not obvious, so I can go and get all of those customers mm-hmm. and with the other my competitors in the dust? You know, <laughs> I know. so the, these are the things I think about in my daily life. Is that weird or what? <laughs> it's a little weird, but you know, it's also highly valuable to the uh, to the customer right the, the customer yeah. in this case being the bank it's just we, we often we get lost in this technology forget that we really are shaping businesses and opportunities here so that, yes. that moment we're, like, we're changing the world we could That's change the world doing. yeah we have a, we have an impact on the things that we do and so to, being able to get to that point to show we're gonna we're providing direct benefit to the business like that those are good days yeah, and and I out. and I'm really actually the project I've been working on the last year has been for a nonprofit, and that interacts with NGOs. And for that, I really can say it is changing the world, and that's you know even more rewarding than mm-hmm. you know just the the business side of things. Totally, it's, absolutely appreciate that. So, how do folks get started with with uh, Azure Data Lakes? Oh <sighs> well, there's uh, there's tutorials. You know, Azure has. Um, some free offerings Mm -hmm. that allow you to set up uh, an account. And there are some tutorials through their documentation. That's probably a very easy way to get started with it. A lot of stuff is getting into GitHub now. That's also kind of a fascinating thing. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, for devs, we've been in GitHub a long time, but for IT... And data people, yeah. yeah, It's interesting that that... What's the role there? Well, just storing sample data, storing tutorials. Mm -hmm. I mean, basically anything that's a central repository of um, things that we can use, whether it's uh, descriptive or actual sample data. And and so instead of, you know, having web links that, you know, may or may not be up to date and 
this whole notion of open sourcing that as well. So I even found some things in Microsoft documentation and I went, oh, this is incorrect. It's minor, but, you know, it was still important and it needed to be corrected. So I could go in and um, as, you know, just me as an outsider and say, here's what I think needs to be fixed. And they look at it and they go, yep, you're right. And it gets fixed. Nice. And so that's kind of another interesting you know, evolution in our management of data and metadata, or I, I'm not, it's probably a broader concept there, but just the ability for multiple people to uh, improve on something. Sure. Well, and, really and this is in a very public way, right? That these samples yeah. for understanding Azure data lakes are on GitHub so that anybody can make a contribution to them. Of course, there's yeah. some controls. If you make the contribution, they may not accept it. Right. But it also speaks to, as an organization, should we have a private GitHub repository where right. we have our own things that are, again, easy to share, easy to version, mm -hmm. uh, even if only contained within the organization. Folks know where things are going on. I think this, exactly. I, this idea that our data transformations, that our schemas and so forth, they're all source code and they should yeah. be managed that way. Yeah. That's really an interesting truism and something we I think we need to talk more about. Yeah, uh, it's off the side of this larger data analytics story, but I think it's an important one. It's like, how do we capture the knowledge we've got about understanding our data in a way that can be shared? Right. And so data governance, to some extent, is trying to solve that problem. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, I, I think it, it when I look at the the concept of data governance and the technology that vendors are coming up with to deal with data governance from a technology point of view, that certainly is an end goal. Right. Um, I think there's varying degrees of success with that, but so there's certainly lots of room for growth there, but it's, it's, it's a, it's a problem that's clearly recognized. And mm -hmm. I know that there are really smart people trying to solve that problem. Awesome stuff. And Stacia, if folks want to hear more from you or find to see the stuff that you're working on, where can they go? Well, I have a website, datainspirations.com. Mm -hmm. And we'll see you at the SQL Intersection, I'm sure. Possibly. Possibly. <laughs> I guess. My, my, my future engagements remain to be determined. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, I guess always, always in flux, but uh, yes. good stuff. Uh, Stacia Varga, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Richard. And we'll talk to you next time on Run As Radio.